I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all very much for coming to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to see you all. Um, we are delighted to have Ruth Padell reading from Watershed, published by Hazel Press. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Daphne, and everyone at Hazel Press as ever. Um, we also have Sean Barradale, another Hazel Press poet. Um, our, our poets will both read, talk to each other, perhaps about the shared concerns in their work, and there'll be time for questions at the end. Please give our guests a huge round of applause. Thank you both so much for being here. Well, thank you, and, and good evening, everybody, and thank you all for coming. And um, it's the launch of this book, which is published by one of the most wonderful new presses um, in the last few years to have risen like a star. And this is Hazel Press, which is a completely ecological press. And um, the wonderful editor and my friend is here tonight, Daphne Astor. And she is the first person I have to thank after you for coming and after Sean for, um, for coming to, to talk about this. We, we've, read, we've read before together, haven't we? We have in uh, Edinburgh, I think. Yes, yeah. and then we both, had, we both had poems sort of about the earth. I was doing emeralds and you were doing tunnels. That's right, caves <laughs> and tunnels and yes. swallows. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm doing water and Sean has this lovely book on um, insects and also a book with Hazel Press about more insects, about Sylvia Plath and bees. Um, but I've also just discovered that he should be writing about water. He probably is because in lockdown, he built a boat he's living on. <laughs> so, um, it's, you know, that's, that's wonderful. I also have some other thanks. Um, these poems are about uh, water and climate denial. And um, they started 10 years ago when I, when I saw the most wonderful thing. I don't know if any of you saw it in Somerset House, the Museum of Water. Um, by Amy Sharrox. I see little, little, yes. And, she, and that was really so exciting. And that started these poems off. And then also to Writers Rebel, I recorded a very early version of these poems for them when they were um, doing their event at, at um, Tufton Street, which is the heart of climate denial and at the moment here. And, um, and I just recorded them on a mobile phone. And it was on their website. And I don't know, is Vic Sharma here? He's a composer who just set my voice on the mobile and all its crackly fragility to music in the most wonderful way. Um, so um, I just wanted to thank everybody for that. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read a few poems from the book which Sean has picked out, and then we'll discuss them. and then. I want to talk a lot and introduce, you know, Sean's work and how our interests relate. And I'm so pleased that you, you said yes to, to coming to tonight because I guess poets at the moment with our great tradition of nature poetry, 
um, the big question is, how can you write about it? How can you write about it in a way that takes poetry further, that takes poetry seriously further? Um, there's lament, there's anger, there's doom, but you also have to make a poem. Mm. And that's, so we might be talking yeah, about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'm going to start with some of the poems that um, Sean picked out. And he liked the title of this one. And um, I think we both share an interest in, in interesting titles. And I was thinking about a title of a poem is kind of like a frame for a painting, that it focuses, it, it focuses where you look, um, where the light goes. And um, this one is called All the World's Fresh Water in One Bubble Over Atlanta, Georgia. Groundwater, swamp water, rain gullies, rivers, ditches, and ponds. And that's it. A map of the only fresh water on the planet. <clears throat> Wind whips the lagoon into bubble froth soap suds and wet wipes blocking the drain. Your hands shake like rags in a gale before the eternal night of an exoplanet raining metal vapor and liquid gems. One side facing its own star scorching in light, the other in infinite dark. You wait for the augury, sing to the brook. Life flies out and away, a blackbird shrieking alarm from a leafless branch. So that was a poem which had spaces between some of the words and the line. This is a poem which is just a block poem, a long, um, thin one in a different voice. <coughs> and I suppose water is an important is an important thing for a poet to think about because of form and formlessness and how form goes and what liquid does. Water God, I have no form without a container or the saving minerals of a rock and clay. Unscrew the glass bottles, inhale a whiff of charybdis. I'll go my own way, separate into steam. You can't hold me back. I am sparkle, wave ripple, sky talk. You'll see the ocean suck itself dry, then a death wall, a tsunami blocking the heavens. You'll seek me in depths of the Bolivian desert and the water table of the Chaco Poireal. You won't know if I'm coming or going, but when I'm gone, you turn to prayer. And I'm there with a vengeance, flood of reproach, flood of tears, 40 blue days, 40 black nights, a tide of dysentery and plague. Look for me in spray at the end of the hose pipe, end of the rainbow, end of the year when light fails in the Arctic Circle. 
I seep up through bubbles of loose plaster, dead matter crusted with light. You need me like God. Pour me out of a tap as lightly as stroking the dog and treat me as a metaphor for the sacred. But who, if I call now, would hear? I know these are rather dark. There's a little sparkle of hope at the end. Um, this one um, goes into myth, rather. Lady of the Lake and the translucent sperm of microplastics in rain, in our food, in every human placenta. Probably the placentas of water voles too, swimming towards their breakfast of floating flowers as if the divided fishtail of Melusine waved at the weir below the factory and smothered the whole surface in froth. Islands and pinnacles shredding away from their own crests, glimmering like net trim on a ball gown, gossamer breaking to quicksilver, and a white hand thrust up through the whole mess, offering a sword and a tambourine to every river in Arthurian England, bubbling with iridescent chemicals, prescription drugs, and raw sewage released from the veins of every current 400 times a year. Everything we need to think about and don't. The Atlantic jet speed stream speeding up, Australia, Spain, California on fire, and children all over the globe injected with a blast of climate terror, climate guilt, straight into the hippocampus. As if a pub in that crystal cave at the end of the world held a darts match for the blind. And the boards were our bodies, our hearts. So the last one I'm gonna read in this is, um, it's called Hope is a Lamp made of water. And um, I just want to tell you a little bit about that. There is a renewable energy startup company in Colombia, which has developed a small lamp that turns salt water into light. And it brings power to communities without access to electricity. And it's based on the fishing practices of a people called the Wayu, whose system of justice I love this, whose system of justice, which is resolving conflict through mediation and negotiation, is recognized by UNESCO as part of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. I, I think that's just extraordinary. Um, and the poem is sort of shaped by a like a rather complicated lamp. I don't know why, why it just got like that. <clears throat> Hope is a lamp made of water. Now you are leaving, dip your hand in the sea, scoop up the blue and green lozenges of all your past years. Electrolytes in a liter of salt water gathered by the Weiu indigenous community on the remote La Guajira Peninsula. Desert surrounded by ocean at the dangerous border between Colombia and Venezuela, who use salt water to light their night fishing.
electrical energy without needing to travel to find it. Power you don't have to buy from other people. A light source, new life running underneath this one. Pour everything in, hoping the magic will happen. Ionization will turn the raw mix into a thousand days of light, an invention that might save the world. Like your hand on my arm, skin on skin, one mind understanding another. So I'll stop there for the moment. Um, but I'd like to ask Sean, really, you know, what, what made you choose those poems? Why did you respond to those in particular? Um, I, well, I, I was fascinated um, in turn to know how you how these poems, because my sense of this book, having, having read it a number of times, is that it, it travels so quickly. So the, the voice and the observing, the, the sort of um, the poet observatory, if you like, uh, it, I had a sense that suddenly outer space wasn't far away, but actually very close. And 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 I think it's the transport, it's the quickness with which this this um, it's like you you've and you do mention a water spirit in one of the poems. Uh, you've you've taken those water spirits that have fallen slightly redundant yes, in things. our world, and um, and you've kind of drawn them into sort of it's rather like this lamp. You've you've managed to convert them into into a sort of energy source to to look and to scrutinise the whole world, mm. um, and and it's the sort of the deafness that I find that exists <laughs> between the poems. Um, I found incredible. And so I, I suppose these to me sort of had a, there were different facets that came to light. So, so this one was hopeful, the one you've just read. And, and it was also, it does occupy this form. And I was fascinated by your relate. And I'm so glad you mentioned it, the relationship between, you know, because we can't speak as climate scientists, obviously, uh, but we can try to speak as poets in some capacity. And there's something about how does the poem work and how do the pressures that bear upon um, existence, experience, language, uh, how does that change our relationship to what poetry might be able to do and how can we try to, to push that and move that? Yeah, you, you talked in one email about um, moving between fields of focus and trying to hold or find a position of knowing. Um, and you felt that there was a strong pragmatic urge. I think that's partly because I'm writing a desperate trying to finish a book on elephants, a non-fiction book on elephants, and I'm feeling so practical about that because of the conservation of it. Um, so there is this practicality. But um, in one of those poems, when I'm really hitting it hard about how awful it is and you know people putting raw, raw, raw sewage and everything into it, mm. I try to lighten it with the tone and sort of talking about the the pot with the water bowls. Yeah. Um, you know, did, how do you do it? Because you, you're doing the things too. I mean, his his book on insects is is very much about you know how how vulnerable these insects on which we all depend are to the world. And um, but you do it you do it in a quite different way. You... A, di a different um, different range, a different focal range, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I mean the, the idea. But these your poems do zoom. You were able to zoom in to very intimate details and then zoom back out very quickly. And and in that sense, I had this strange feeling that your your kind of poetic observatory was actually a globule of water, like a like a droplet of water in the mist swirling around the planet. 
And then I had that odd sense of, do you know, in, in, in Paradise Lost, where Satan is kind of moving around the edge and there's a sort of rustling, almost like static in, in the mm. sort of outer atmosphere. And it, <laughs> it was a sense that your, your kind of little globule of water could, could have moved in that way. And it was, it was, I found that remarkable that that sort of exists between the poems. No poem states that directly, but somehow that's the sense that comes out of them. The other thing that comes out, and you mentioned it, is the elegiac or the elegy or the lament um, as part of elegy. And, and there is a reference, I don't know if it is a reference to the Duino elegy, to Rilke's um, Who If I Called Out or Cried Out Would Hear oh, yeah, Me. Yeah. But that, that turned just a reminder of the elegiac and how how important it is to to embrace that fully because it is it is a feeling that that many people experience now there is a kind of the sort of the everyday lament and how we how we kind of hold that and and use that to some to some potential rather than something that sort of pulls us down yes and i feel that very strongly in these poems that you're really trying to to find a way to render that lament useful in some way Yes, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How is lament useful? Is it useful to other people? It might be your own grief, but how, how, do, you, how do you make it um, radiate hmm. in, a, yeah, in a useful way? Yeah. Let's go to some of yours, and, and, let's, and I, I want to sort of hear how you make it. Um, you know, the, 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 there's the one about the, the, the um, effects of that, that one, the effect of a petrol engine lawn power. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, these aren't disconnected to yours at all. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about um, the world that we live in is a world that we, and, and you mentioned this in terms of making, we make stories and we live through our stories, and maybe in some sense that's all we have. And the world is a kind of story. It's a story that we share, and, and bits of it don't add up, and bits of it don't, fit one another's versions of that story, but nevertheless, it kind of is a, and the idea of a world is, is a sort of, as much as a fiction as it is something that we can lay in fact. And so this idea of a lawnmower and mowing kind of creates a certain world that we can kind of feel that we have, have our sort of world around us. It is a very wonderful thing to mow lawn in the right conditions. And then you have that lovely almond smell in the evening of the cut grass and so on. But, but there's another side where, what if that lawnmower does something which completely swerves your your sense of world out of itself and i i think this was a, a way to try to deal with that so effect of a petrol engine lawnmower moths rise from the earth bony papers that resurrect lightly blood so dry it sticks to the mouth the sky is a mouth the mower's workspace, its blade spinning urges them up, up. Reflexes deprived of body mass leak. What have I done? Ants drag work the area down again, down, down into the vaults of their undertow, down into their hospital of un unmentioned anniversaries, unmarked births. A social, infallible emergency they trust to restore ands and more ands, a ground badged with sores down again down, to re-impregnate, to re-audition, to rethink earth to harbour eggs. 
I, I love that word to re-audition and rethink Earth. And really, that's one of the things that we both want to do. Yeah, I suppose. And it, it is it is how do we sort of re uh, kind of restaging our, our sort of what maybe what life can be and and how we fit within that. Um, some. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you bring in self sometimes. Um, is it um, the, the devil's coach horse beetle? Um, there's a sense if I zoom out to the world, to world and back, and you zoom into the the self and back again, in a way. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this this the self always for me feels problematic as a, as a poet. I, I think it's it's a real um, like a huge eclipse <laughs> to seeing so much else. But then the self is a, is also only made by what is there in some sense. So. Uh, do you mean the one on the left or the right? Well, I was thinking, well, either of them, which, whichever you think would be more appropriate. Um, Maybe the moment of witness is a good one. Okay. Yeah, yeah there's two. It's a kind of diptych. And, and I found myself in this, in this book writing a number of diptych, diptychs, partly because I felt that I never had quite one relationship to something and I wanted to have another go at it. Uh, it's also about rehearsal. And I feel that poems are very often rehearsals for something that you're trying to say. And and so to give to have op, to have versions to to not commit to just there being this is this is the poem but actually this is the sense that I'm trying to to sort of it's a very painterly way of thinking about it because painters often do a sort of whole series of paintings mm. of Cezanne's card player or something like that yeah and and also I suppose I trained as a printmaker and I know with etchings you have you have states so you take a state you take a proof and you see what happens and you work back into it. Mm. So you end up with a whole collection of images that are not quite the same. <laughs> so I sort of playing with that. Devil's Coach Horse, beautiful black beetles that are um, very shy. You get them um, in damp, probably slightly dirty houses. Um, and we had quite a few. Um, <laughs> uh, they come out at night. Very, they're, they're very beautiful. Devil's Coach Horse, beetles slowly through a moment of witness. Even here, its artery is of black silence juddering over painted concrete of the kitchen floor. A silent siren carrying a consequence of its entering. The beetle articulates furiously on. Time, so still, so thickened, I cannot cross it after it, but hold it, opening across me, closing across me. Is it a kinship? What will I do with an us that absorbs me? Have I mentioned the barbs, the fringed bristles along the legs, the segments of antennae, the prismatic sheen across blackness, each part immaculate, unbruised, unchafed as something born? No, but in the slow whirlpool of the room, to have passed a beetle on nearly equal terms. Yes, I love that. And, and uh, I might just remind us all that um, actually we started off tonight exactly the same moment that David Attenborough's Wild Isles are starting on on um, on TV and um, the sense of looking and also being looked back. So it's a moment of witness and the mm. nearly equal terms. Yeah, it's so fragile though that isn't it? It's it's um, you know you sort of also it's it's a sort of quantum thing. You try and scrutinise something and it changes it. So you you know your your presence yes changes it, um, which I guess with the water is is an absolute. Well, when I was when I was doing this, and also I again I want to thank my wonderful editor because um, she pushed me 
you know, some, some days you say, there, there isn't enough sparkle in this roof. <laughs> um, so I, um, I mean, I could read a poem that I read, Real Wretched Sparkle. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the last one. Um, it's called Water Bearer because Aquarius, and I don't know very much about astrology, but there's a, the, 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 the signs like that of a water bearer are for, light, uh, for, for, for the sign of lightning, I think, which I, su I suppose is something going between earth and sky, uh, water, water, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I looked up various things about the water bearer. And I was also thinking, I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the young and, and what sort of world are they going to inherit and, and what are they going to do with it? And um, what is hope and how things change? All that is coming into it. Water bearer, rope dancer, plate spinner, blazing out in two bolts of lightning, nymph with a thousand names, angel in the desert, pure energy pouring to earth, water blown by wind, spark of enlightenment descending from heaven, translating darkness to light. She, he, the wide open anywhere, poised at the jump zone, carrying a skin to the creek or to a river legally recognized as a person, where there still is light dance and spin drift, new worlds in every eddy, moon trails on the lake, reflection, reflection, ripple and play, water dazzle, the witness of rain and the longing for horizon, even in a world going up in flames, at the precipice, which is also the edge of epiphany and whatever lies beyond, for the ivory acrobat, girl or girl boy, diving like liquid through air, reaching out to the monster's horns as a drop dies in the river of its joy. I love that. Um, yeah, with certainly sparkle, it's, it's um extraordinary image. You, you seem to draw your poems, I mean, it accomplishes extraordinary final images, like the darts match inside, yeah. you know, in the cave. It's... It's um and, and and the other thing that happens very very sort of seems to flourish in these poems is the sort of the way that you make questions. It's like water itself is a sort of question making. Yes, you said that. Yes, um, state if you like or yeah. And, and I I was fascinated by that because they're not. It, for example, in um, the poem "Angel of the Refraction," and um, and you sort of open this um sort of conversational tone and and it just. What flows from you to me will come back seeking its own level, but different, like the bent path of a light wave. And I, I, I just that to me is, you know, the, the, all of these poems are a form of refraction, you know, that you're, you're yeah. using the prismatic quality of water to, to sort of pass the voice through it and to find something, you know, which isn't just the sort of despair and, and the awful kind of realities that, that seem to be kind of you know, gathering, but but there's maybe a path through it, and I think the poem that you just read is is a way of it. It seems you know that you refract, you find things, and then you put them through with the voice, you know, <laughs> and and then something happens, which maybe can take us somewhere else. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a sense yes, you have. Uh, it, how, it's how very funny ah. to hear your own work sort of 
we interpret it in I, I guess um, my question is how how did these poems happen because you have such a wide range of um of subjects and, and a lot of things that you've brought into them and it, did it take a long time to write this or was it a sort of flood yes. of... No, it took it took 10 years yeah um i i started it when well because i just joined king's college and somebody at king's asked me to write about or respond to the new wonderful museum of water if you don't know about the museum of water look it up on on, on the net, um, she's, she went around getting lots of little asking for stories. Stories is something perhaps which mm. comes into you. Um, stories about little bits of water. So there's so somebody sent in water from the moon or water from the depths of the sea or water from a melting snowman or something like that or a baby's first bath. And gradually these stories accumulate and it was beautifully done. Mm. And she's taken it around and people have added it to it. So I got very excited about that. And then I responded to various other things. And then, um, I mean, things like um, when my, my daughter was on her gap year and she was in, um, in Bolivia and there was this thing, I mentioned the Chaco Boreal. And so I was sensitized to the Chaco Boreal and apparently it has a very high water table. And while she was away, um, I discovered that George Bush's advisors had told him to buy up a whole lot of the Chaco Boreal because of the water in it. You know, and I suddenly thought water is, you know, the 21st century oil. And um, and and this, this thing about the, all the world's fresh water in one bubble, mm. I found a map of, um, of all the water in the world. And, you know, there's a whole picture of a map of the world like that spread out on a screen. And there's this one tiny bubble over Georgia. Mm. And that's the fresh water, all the rest is salt. And you know, how fragile water mm. is, mm. but also how terrifying the floods that we've had and so on. So, mm. so um, that all came in. Um, and poetry is just such a, if you can, if you can, can well, condensation is the very word we're after, isn't mm. it? You condense everything. Yes. Read another of yours. Um, what, what, there was another one you were going to read. Um, well, the, the bright, the hot, bright visionary flies. I love those oh, flies. Cool. Yeah, well, that, that I sort of funny. I, I wrote that and I thought, God, I felt like I couldn't ever write anything again because of the way it sort of states its ending. But anyway, um, trying to break that um, promise to make. You sure. will. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the ending poem. It's a, it's a small one. And, yeah. um, um, and also these poems are rather like insects, insects. they have little, little feelers that go out here mm. and there and there. mm. there's a sort of fr wonderful fragility about them. Mm. And yet we depend on insects for our lives. Well, yes, and I suppose I'd kept bees um, before I wrote this. And so I had the problem of being the keeper and whatever that entails. I realized that I wasn't really a keeper, that I just poked and created <laughs> problems for the bees and then had a, I mean, it's, it's kind of horrific, really, when you really examine what happens. When you open a beehive, you kind of do tear open their house. Actually, the house is, is a part of their own organ. It's part of their own being. It's not just a house. It's wax that they've formed. It's secreted. It's, it's, a, it's a very organic completion. And, and so that act of tearing it open is, is horrific, really. So I, I started to think very much about the act of keeping. And then also what a house is. We put bees in hives. They don't, they don't exist in hives, uh, they exist in nests. They find holes and nests and they burrow into the ground if they're bumblebees and so on. But hives are what we make for them. We make them little houses, so little pieces of machinery. 
And, and I suppose our sense of, you know, we're talking about the environment and the ecological and eco, you know, that that's the Greek root is house. And so I guess a lot of that is to do with housekeeping. And a lot of the anxiety that we're facing is a sort of one of housekeeping in some sense mm -hmm. and how uh, economy um, fits that. Uh, and I, whilst keeping bees, I also started to think about, well, what about the insects that I'm not keeping, but those who are sort of keeping me or keeping us? and started to look around the house, the actual house that I was living in, and just just trying to find places of proximity and to think about that proximity. And, and I'm wondering about, like, who is the real inhabitant here? You know, because we'd lived in the house for a few years. We were the only generation with our children to live there. But what are the insects, I presume, have had countless generations there. Uh, so really, are they the inhabitants? And we're, we're the incomers, we're the blow-ins. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, my sense of time changed through these these encounters and also my sense of what proximity could be. How how close can I get to something that I really don't know or, on almost any terms? And usually the, the sort of condition of housekeeping is to banish insects. Um, but I it was impossible to banish them in this house, I must admit. But, but I started to like their presence. It was interesting. And... Um, and so, and then around the house to like the sense, and, and rather like your water droplets in the air, that I, on some days you could look up and see the insects in the air, and there were so many of them, um, just it was teeming with insects. So this, this uh, last poem is a sense of that sort of glance. Hot, bright, visionary flies. The hot lozenge lifts, uprisings, downfalls, a ticking beyond sound, a red square of falling sun, a mass breathing, beating, a sky studded with stones, fraught with cut light, an abolished mechanics at dewdrop scale, onyx, topaz, opal, each a dull pulsing. One day it will stop, the air will stop. The light will stop. Well, the last word in the book. <laughs> I don't, yeah, or maybe telling myself to stop. Because, <laughs> because it, I think when you're writing certain things, it, it can be, sort of close in on you. It can become obsessive because it sort of has to be. You have, mm. to, you have to instrumentalize yourself and attune yourself to that particular thing. And so you start to see the whole world through this everything you do becomes sort of aligned with that activity of process of trying to think through the language barrier yeah. um, into yeah. something. Matthew Sweeney used to, used to say that towards the end of a collection, the last poems you write in the collection are sort of feeling their way to the next, the next thing you're going to be thinking about. But maybe that's not always true. Are there poems here that, that sort of kind of make a, a sort of jump out into... I don't know, but I, I I think perhaps stories. I think the, the um, yes, the stories is the story and, thing. And this comes and actually even in the light poem, I love this uh, this way you talk about the magic will happen. Ionization will turn the raw mix into a thousand days of light, and then mm. that's an inversion, of course, of the thousand nights, which is the sort of biding time or, or trying to survive either way through storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, yes. And, and shall I read the, the one about water stories written by that would, men? Because that would be yes. a lot. Of, in fact, mm. I would. I hope um, would read that. Yeah. So, 
So um, I suppose there is a, a quite sort of female thing through the poems because water and liquidity and, and flowing and transformation, um, at least that's one of the narratives swirling around femaleness as we think about it today. <coughs> um, so this is water stories written by men. Here is the dark amber cistern out of the foundations of Istanbul dedicated to Medusa and her devastating eyes. Here are nine translucent ice columns, midsummer muses drawn from the core of nine Icelandic glaciers, each warming at a different rate. And here is the golden fleece, the sparkle of sunlight at Colchis on the Black Sea, where the Princess Medea, just a young girl, will fall in love with an adventurer, sailing in to steal the gloss off the surface. In the story as written by a man, she will betray her father, her brother, and who she was meant to be. All her lovely botanical knowledge, herbs she gathered of healing and changing, will do her no good at all. Let's tell it for ourselves. Make her the guardian of a dream waiting to be born on a mirage-prone border, like this river that has suddenly appeared between you and me. Let her be a corona of mist, drifting, thinning, turning to rain. So I suppose I'm thinking there that, that stories keep changing and um, just as water keeps changing, yeah. their form, their, their importance, their meanings. I love the way that you state the sort of the, the um, you know, in myth, there's always a sort of an eternal present in, in mythic stories. And, and you sort of allow that to switch because she, you know, just a, a young girl will fall in love. Um, and will betray her father. You give this opportunity to sort of switch that and, and, and let the, um, in a way, the eternal instant be an opportunity to try another course. And I, I think that's very powerful mm. in this poem. And I love that, that dream waiting to be born on a mirage-prone border like this mm. river. It's, it's stunning. It's just this... Thank you. I, I think this is a, a lot of... This is about relationships and about the, the water level of, between relationships and how it's always changing. And um, whereas I think you've got this in, in this book, there's a, there's a in, in inmates, there's a lot of between you and the insect, you and the observer, and the natural world. Mm. Here, I'm I'm thinking of the of water as an as an as the as the unconscious of the self, but also in the shifting relationships, constantly shifting between one one person and another, between mm. self and other. Yeah. Um, and so that happens in myth all the time. Yes. Cost, yeah. Constant transferals of, of uh, power, <laughs> yes. in a way. Um, yeah. I mean, do you want to? Uh, there's there are um, the, the angel of refraction, which. Um, okay. Yes. Yes, you like that one. I don't. I get, it, coming back to that one. It was just that sort of. Um, I did sort of quote a little from it a minute mm, ago, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, because it's so mysterious when you look at a stick, and and it bends in the water, 
and I suppose it, I was thinking of, of that really, the, ref, the fraction, but also again of, of, of what happens between two people as they speak. And, you know, my words go out to you and, and you hear them differently from how I meant them and your words come into me. And, and what happens to my, once my words have been in you, what will I feel about them then? And, mm. and that, kind of, that kind of thing. But so water, is, water became such an image of what goes on between people as well as what is in your mind. And of course, what we are. Angel of refraction. What flows from you to me will come back, seeking its own level, but different, like the bent path of a light wave passing to water from air. The stories we tell about ourselves may not be true, but they're all we have. A door in perspective, half open, a wobble at one remove of stars and moon. I offer mine as if they were true, trusting you to deal with me truly too. Who is there now to remember who you were at the hour of your birth when the wind changed and the owl in the chimney swung round in its cowl? How will you feel now about what you said? What has it become? Where has it been? And what is this owl gaze into the soul, the glug, glug, glug of between? I'm doing a, quite a lot of rhyming at the end of end That's of interesting <laughs> rhyming. But the, the right, yeah, rhyming, the rhyming is interesting because it's a sort of, again, it's that sort of difference of, of level, isn't it? Sort of occurring and, and it's not quite, hmm. the rhyme is never quite absolute. So it's not. It's not pattern. No, mm. and, but it allows those sort of levels or, or you know, that sort of thing when, when water changes level and it still has to settle. Yes. I feel the rhyme <laughs> sort of does that. It's, yeah. um, and I, the glug-glug is, is very, it's, it's sort of, it's time as well. So you bring time into that poem. Yes, an hourglass time or, mm. or drips of water. Mm. Yes. Um, well, why don't you read one more? Oh, which is the other one that you were... Oh yeah, the the, the the demoiselle emergence, oh, yeah. which I felt was a sort of pupae or pupa or something coming out. Or... Well, I mean, it does. It mentions prison. I mean, the book is called Inmates, and um, I mean, inmates is, is a to use your word wobble. It's a kind of wobbly word. It, it has the inmates, of course, the the imprisoned, those those kept. But I also had Coleridge's Frost at Midnight in my mind because of that um, domestic setting and inmates, these cottage inmates that he refers to his family at night asleep. But you, you have a sense that the inmates are greater than that as well, that there are other, other inclusions in that. And, and I also like that poem, Frost and Midnight, because it's part of a small group that he called to conversation pieces. And so there's a sense that they're not quite poems, that they're more, they're slightly in, in a slightly kind of raw state in some sense, uh, and they document moments. And so these poems are doing that. They document moments. And I try to think of them not as poems, but as those kind of language places um, where something, you know, sort of, they, they sort of, you peel them off a bit like prints or something. Um, so this is, um, yeah, Banded Demoiselle Emergence. So it's the sort of emergence of, of an insect. Everything has gates or a door. The prison is open 
the door into the glare, blind within its darkness. Everything, everything whines and shines. The moment glares coupled to the moment the glare is sworn through. That stick bent or that stick snapped. What is the difference? A horizontal line drawn over a pot implies a handle around a pit trap serves as a lip. That's wonderful. Yes. Actually, I, mean, I was reminded of your refracted stick. Yes, you know, we've got bent, bent sticks bent in common. Sticks yes. <laughs> but I think we, we should stop in a minute, but I thought maybe I'll read the first poem in the book, um, which is very little. And, um, and it's, it's really about how we, well, how denial works. We all know, you know, we, uh, how, you know things, are, things, are, things are dark out there. Um, and this, this image that I saw in a paper was, was just sort of sums it up. Um, but also, also how, how amazing things are. Selfie with blue-ringed octopus. Bad dreams ignored. Lit raindrops on windows of the midnight bus and then a footstep behind you. Like the girl on the Sydney beach who picked up a tiny blue-ringed octopus most dangerous creature in the sea for a selfie. It rested in the cup of her hand, one small jelly spider, two legs folded under, as if it were on its knees, praying. So thank you very much, Sean. And, and you, would you want any questions? And we've got 10 minutes for questions. We've stopped beautifully in time for 10 minutes for <laughs> questions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's really lovely and, um, and a privilege. It is privileged to hear not just one, but two poets reading their own work, talking about their work, sharing in conversation. And what I want to ask both of you is, how you feel about the practice of talking about the writing of a particular poem and because it leads so easily into a kind of explanation or sharing of the thinking and the context. Whereas, of course, if I go tomorrow and pick up the book, and turn to that page, what I will have is the written printed words. And from that, I can read the poem get once and then again and then again to, to know or to try to fathom what is in the words and behind the words. And, and I wonder whether you feel that it helps to have the chance to talk in conversation and explain or recount? It's, well, refraction comes to mind, but um, as, as a sort of changed perspective on, on, on what, I mean, I feel that my relationship to my own poems changes all the time. And if I'm asked a question by Ruth here, my relationship, it will change my relationship. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting process. I also think the, the, the words on the page are sort of, there's a gap 
there's always a gap and that that's the that's i suppose that's why it works in some sense is that the reader can come along and and change the nature of those words by the act of reading so i suppose to explain it's not i don't feel i'm explaining maybe i'm trying to explain something to myself if someone asks me so i can understand what the question is in some senses but it does i do feel it's an open it's not a, it's not a finished process for me it's never a finished mm. process yeah um it's it's interesting i mean poets can can talk endlessly <laughs> um but it's um you can talk about the writing of it um so i mean i did notice that the you know the this, this thing I mentioned, the Museum of Water, has got into a lot of these poems, and I could think mm. about that, and I could talk about that for an hour, as you could probably talk about about just one room of insects in mm. an hour for, in your house. But, um, but I suppose it's interesting to see how somebody else takes their experience and and puts it and wants to put it into this strange form. I mean, it's a very weird thing to do to write a poem. You spend hours, days, weeks. Well. Ten years, and on, on these things, and and it's a totally uneconomical activity, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it's and you know a tiny number of people on the in London, let alone on the planet, will ever read it. Um, but and why do you want to make it? What's so important about about um, doing this? It's to concentrate experience and then to refract it, to offer mm. it, I suppose. Mm. Um, um, so, so it's it's interesting to talk about it, but it doesn't take away. But but you can read the poem. Just a poem belongs to its reader. Well, first of all, thank you. It's been fascinating, both of you, with your different poems. I mean, I've written one or two non-fiction things, but I've never, ever been as, as clever as this. Um, I mean, you say that took you 10 years. Is that because you put it down for a couple of years? Or is it because you sort of suddenly thought, I'll have another go tomorrow, and then I'll have another go tomorrow? So first of all, I just wonder. And then this business about going back, I'm a terror for going back over things I've done. And and how much of, of the change on both of you um, do, do you make? Do you think you do a poem, that's it, gone? Or do you think you sort of think, I'll just make another word here, another word there? Well, I just I fast, but yeah. first of all, I just think it's brilliant. I'm a, as a non-poetry person, I came for you, Ruth, and I'm glad I came. Well, um, yeah, well, when I say it took 10 years, I mean, I started these poems 10 years ago, but I have written quite a lot of other books in between. <laughs> um, and, um, and I do think that that's an important thing. You, you do something in the white heat of something, and mm. then you, you lay it down. And it changes while it's sitting in the drawer on your laptop or something, and um, and then you know and I did it. I've, I've done various. You know, some of the poems were published in India. Some of them were published in other places. Um, and then I I did the, the sort of sequence for Writers Rebel, um, and and that was interesting because they, they were twenty four then, and I was thinking of I suppose I was thinking of the Odyssey or something. Of, you know, twenty four books. Well, these are twenty four splashes of denial. So right from the beginning, it was about climate change and the horror of denial. And you know, and denial seems to be getting worse and worse. And I think that's because society is getting more and more afraid. So there is a tsunami of, of whatever is coming at us, but there's also the tsunami of denial, which is rising up inside people. Um, so I was constantly thinking of that while I was doing other things. And then when um, Daphne kindly accepted the poems for, for her pamphlets, which are these very concise, beautiful shape, um, then she really pushed me. 
<laughs> she said, I don't like that bit. Cross that out, you know, good, big, big slashes through it. And what about this? This is the thing to work on. And, you know, so, so it was very exciting. You were a very, very creative editor, uh, <laughs> as I am sure other people in this room know. Um, so, um, so, and then, you know, you, you let something go and you leave it and you do other things and you come back to it. I don't know, what's your experience? It's interesting, the, the, the relationship with the editing process, because my, the, these poems, actually I wrote this, um, I wrote four books at once, but over about 10 years, and I kept notebooks, and I kept a set of notebooks for each of these books, not knowing what the book was, um, apart from one of them, which was a very specific poem journal of beekeeping. The others grew very slowly around that, um, and were just spaces that, that I allowed to happen, and very slowly they formed a kind of concentration of their own and a sort of selection process of their own and became, um, so th this one was very aligned to the insect, but I didn't know whether it was part of an insect, a sort of, com a sort of commune of, of sorts, or whether I was subjecting them to something. I didn't know what the relationship was. So the idea of the, the, of the inmates grew very slowly. It probably only occurred at the end of that. In terms of writing over a long period, I, I thank my editor now. At the time, I cursed my editor because I gave, him the manuscript and nothing happened for a year. Yeah. I didn't hear anything. Was that Robin? It was Robin. Oh. And I waited and waited and I, and, but of course in that year, I lived with the poems and they completely changed. So when he asked me to send it to him again, uh, because he had been sort of lost under the sort of heaps of things that probably grow, the, the manuscript was different. And, and actually it does take a lot of time. Mm. You do have to live with something. It's a strange, you can't just write the poem. And so, I mean, it's very rare that, that, that a collection of poems just happens. And I think you need time. And it's, um, again, that adds to the strange economy of the poem because it is a perfectly, in terms of, you know, time value and, and you know, sort of being useful to you in, in other mm. areas of life. It is, it, it just sort of, it's like a sink. You know, it, things just sort of fall into them and never come out again. But there's a value to that, one hopes. And in, in I feel that the, the registers that, that the poem kind of works with are very close to the registers that we're probably concerned about in yeah. the world. Yeah. You know, the, yes. the tiny things, the increments, the, the things that we don't notice very easily but feel now that there's a sort of consciousness growing of that. And I suppose that's yeah. where denial comes in because it is, it's very difficult to think of such huge and incremental change um, and I feel poems are, are sort of calibrations in that so they do they do require calibrating in that sense as well. I suppose I was trying to write poems about the wish not to see or the wish not to think or the wish or something mm. and, that, and that was difficult not to, not, to, not to think about things the wish not to see things and um, and and that took a long time to realize that that's what I was writing about. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, writing poems, is, it, it does, it, it's very rare that you, you know what you're going to do in advance and you have to be able to bear not knowing. Mm. Have we got to stop? Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. That was unbelievably inspiring. Um, uh, but Ruth, you said something interesting. Um, and is this a, um, also maybe a question for uh, the people who make books? Um, at some point, we're all here because we love the sound of language and rhythm, and it moves us. Um, and I guess, and bear with me because I'm I'm trying to formalizing formalize this question. But 
like, would you consider yourself an environmentalist poet? And and just hold on just for a second. And and I read recently somewhere in the state. I'm from the I'm from Maine. I'm from the states. Um, that something like eighty percent of poems that are published in the states are from most people from urban areas. You know, and you know, United States is a huge area, but so not necessarily everyone that may have a seat at the table or be heard. Let's say. Because here, you know, we're we're here in London, and so, I my question is, um, when does I, I'm sorry, I'm struggling here with this. I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say, but when does a poem, like, do, in your mind, are you thinking of global warming, or when does a poem cross into a poem that may actually, uh, do you think about that type of thing, versus say just an observational poem of of a landscape or a working class man and a woman in Maine. Um, yeah, well, uh, I think about global warming all the time. Right, right. Um, and I don't think of myself as an environmentalist poet. I think of myself as an environmentalist and a poet, just as I'm a woman and a poet, and I'm five foot six or whatever I am and a poet. I'm not a five foot six poet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so um, you know, the the whole of the whole of my life, I'm thinking about conservation right. um, and nature, and I guess the same as you. Yeah, I think about I think about global warming, and I'm glad you use that term because that's you know we talk about climate change, and it's not quite doesn't really give an indication of where things are going. Um, global warming, yes, I think about that a lot, and and I have children, and I worry for them and their friends, and um, but I do I do find these sort of, um, yeah, to be, um, say, an environmentalist poet, or I particularly dislike nature poet, because I think nature is a, is a word that is like, um, it's like piece, it's like fast food. There's very little nutritional value in the word nature. <laughs> and, and I think it, it's, it's, it's like a huge roadblock as well. So it, it has, has problems. So, so to be a poet and to be concerned with other things, the poetry serves as, as a sort of, a means that we we sort of work out, but but there are other things that it has to have conversations with. And also, I mean, you know, there's a lot of anger in this, there's a lot of despair in this, and everything. But you can't. Um, most poems written out of anger and despair are not very good poems. You've got to be a good. It's got to be a good poem first. Otherwise, it betrays poetry as well as betraying its its message. Um, I'm not a poetry person either, but I am a visual person. I was struck by quite how visual your poems are, and particularly your metaphor of refraction, and thinking how many particularly of your poems that are about pollution and so on seem to be about a kind of optical illusion. You have this beautiful sparkle that turns out to be pollution or something litter or something terrible. And I wonder if you might say a bit more about the role of the visual in, in you know, the work, words and images and, and how they work together in poetry if it's not too... Wild and woolly in general. The no, question. it's not at all. It's absolutely cardinal. Um, but it's also true of Sean, of course, because he's he's an artist as well as a as well as a poet. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've realised more and more in the last sort of few years that that actually the visual the visual for me is is a sort of another dimension of how I think about poetry. And I wasn't trained in art, and I and I and art for me is is a wonderful playground. You know, I don't have to know 
the things. I, it's, it's a place where I can enjoy experience without knowing, whereas so much of, I was a classical scholar first, so a lot of, a lot of those things are, you know, I, have, I feel I have to know them. Um, and um, yes, I mean, I've, I've written a lot of poems about paintings and I see things. And I think going back to titles for, for a moment and my idea about the title as a sort of frame for it, um, and I think I was thinking about about how does the light get into a painting, and how do you, how does a painter put the light in, and where does the light come from? And then what what do we do about you know Sean's sort of you know, when he when he calls one of his poems the effect of the lawnmower? That's so different from just saying a lawnmower or mowing the lawn or whatever it was. So so the tones and registers of the words you use are like like light for a painter or maybe like white for a painter I don't know um, so that you you can shade it and I, I think I'm constantly thinking of that not at the first not at, not at first at first I go at the poem and then I start to to build it up and palette it or whatever it is does that make sense I mean but Sean will have a completely different answer to that uh, well, no, I think that's a really interesting idea. Actually, I'd not thought of it quite like that. The title being kind of almost the sort of direction of light into the into the poem, and and the way that you light the poem. That's very interesting. Um, I, I I've sort of more I suppose I am concerned. I think of uh, compounds of words and the way that they they sort of hold them together as as material, very material. I trained as a, as as a visual artist. But I, I feel the sort of materiality of language, that there's something of the history of words and the way that you might use certain materials as a sculptor or painter to, to draw something into the, into the work that isn't necessarily visible at first glance, if, if that makes sense. It's a knowledge of, of the materials themselves and their provenance. And I feel that maybe work more in the work of sculptors um, who would use certain materials. I mean, Joseph Boyce is a famous example for for using felt and fat and, and so on. And I, I, but I find that with words, that compounding is, is very like mixing pigments. It's, it's sort of drawing another color out of, out of um, a range that don't contain that color necessarily. But also the cover of, of your, of this, is, this is his um, Redreaming Sylvia Plath as a Queen Bee, um, which Hazel published. And you know, my sense of relationships of, between words in a poem is very like some of these cells mm. because they, you know, they, they're constantly shifting and moving. And um, you know, when you when you when you're finally getting to the final surface of a poem, it is you're, you're just grading it and you know, mm. change a little bit, change the word there a bit, and everything shifts. It's, it's no, very it is, exciting. It is, it's very true, um, like the wing of a. Exactly, insects, the, the wings yeah. are the ones that I was yeah. thinking of. Claire, ought we, we, we to be stopping? I'm too busy thinking about light being shown on the poems <laughs> and how lovely. the cells on the cover of Sean's book. Uh, I'm busy. No, um, that, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you all for your uh, questions and contributions. Please do stick around. Come and buy some books, get them signed. Um, thank you both so much. Ruth Patel, Sean Borradell, thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.